0: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten. And in my case, underwearless. hunt The meat eater podcast. You can't predict anything. <laughs> Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. All right, start. What, uh, wh- why Why are you guys uncomfortable with how, how I'm sitting at a desk like an evening newscaster?
1: Well, you have your pants on, right? Yes. Okay.
0: Because <laughs> nowadays... <laughs> There was a time when you could do that, but nowadays you need to have, (laughs) I'm at a desk with a computer and papers in front of me, and it's intimidating to uh, Ryan Callahan and uh, Janice Poodless. It is. It seems like we're just not all part of the conversation here. I'm about to swivel. Well, I'm leading from over here at this desk. Like the old time, there was a time when America would tune in at night in a... And a uh, middle-aged white gentleman would explain to you what's going on in the world. And it was a shared experience. And oftentimes they were pantsless. And we're hearkening back to those days with me here at this desk with these pieces of paper. Um, Callahan, do you remember the last time we spoke? We talked about a fella by the name of Kaido. Oh, He yeah. was breaking down how he does sushi salmon. Yes. That he buries it in kosher salt for eight minutes. So he takes a fish filet, skin on, buries it in kosher salt for eight minutes, or buries it in salt for eight minutes, and then rinses the filet. And that's where you, how you get buttery. Yeah, that's I, f- how you get I
1: feel like he must have broken some unspoken rule, like some smoke and mirrors of the sushi industry.
0: Because, by telling us that.
1: Yeah, because... Everybody's blown away by that.
0: He wrote back. He wants you to know this. Yes. That's what he does. We did not have it wrong. He says he, he does half flays. Um, leaves the skin on it when he salts it. Okay. He thinks it controls a little bit of the moisture loss. And then he says, because you got to pull the pin bones... Pull them after you salt the flay. So cover the whole flay in salt. Count to count to what's eight times sixty. That is a hard math problem. 480? Count to 480 yes. and then count to 480, like one Mississippi 480 times, then rinse all the salt off, then pull the the then pull the pin bones.
1: Cause he said absolutely no longer than 10 minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: and he says that when you pull those pin bones, it doesn't do any damage to the meat. It just They just slip right out. I've seen that because if you freeze a flay and then pull the pin bones after you freeze it, it does a lot less damage. Yeah. It loses its grip on the pin bones. You when you de-pin bone a fresh fast. fish, you're pulling up little popsicles. Yes. Bone with meat hanging off the end. Yeah, you can make them look like junk fast. What he also says is this. And I do. I learned this from my old man. Well, my old man learned it from Eugene Groters. I don't know. Lord knows where Eugene Groters learned it from. But when he's handling salmon flays, and this kind of goes for all fish flays, he makes a hole at the tail through the skin to make a little finger gripper hole, and that's how he handles it. He doesn't carry it around by holding the meat. Yeah. And doesn't maneuver it that way. He makes a hole at the tail, cuts a little hole. And that's how we – isn't that isn't that right, Janice? Back me up. We make a little finger hole in fish fillets oftentimes to tote them around. Yeah, and to skin them, because it gives you something to grab onto. He says he does that. This is from a this from a, a, a full on sushi chef. Um, that way you handle the flay. All the stress is on the skin and not on the meat. The skin never breaks. He goes on to say this. Callahan, he says, it spelled your name right. Wow, huh? loves to use call fat. He soaks it in buttermilk. To purge it and flavor it, he likes to add a tablespoon of Old Bay spice mix to the buttermilk and then soak his call fat in there and also his liver.
1: That's going to make young uh, Ford Van Fossen at the First Light office very happy. He's a Marylander and Mm. he thinks the sun rises and sets
2: on Old Bay. Uh, That's goes, good shit. I like it. I mean, for like a just like an all purpose, it's right up there with Tony Cs. No, I feel really? like no, oh yeah. no. I think it is no, very no, distinct.
0: No yeah, no. from my desk with <laughs> from my desk in a in a position that would suggest authority over those around me. <laughs> no. Tony sees. I don't know why we always called Uncle Tom's seasoning. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from. like something to do with Uncle Tom's cabin. But um Tony, what, how does it Chachery something? Like that. Yeah, you Chachuri. know what? I Chachuri. had some Cajun boys. I said that one time, some Cajun boys told me that I had it. I was so far off, I don't even say it anymore. Oh yeah, I get shell shocked by Chacheres, cherries. Yeah. That's not it. Sachet. It's not Sachet. No family is safe when I sachet. That's a rock song. But that stuff, you like Old Bay as much as that? Yeah, in its place for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's because you hang out in North Carolina all the time. I like it on, I eat a lot of seafood too from North Carolina. That's what I'm saying. They probably use a lot of Old Bay down there. Mm, Not a ton.
2: My father in law doesn't, he likes it plain and simple, you know. Salt, salt.
0: Yeah, salt. (laughs) Kaido also says this. On the subject of Morels, he's talking to you in this. Well, he's talking to me in this. He spells your name right and my name wrong. He spells me Steve, S-T-E-A-V-E. Um, he says, Morels, yeah, man, you got to rinse them. Place, don't run water over them. He places them in water. let them soak for a while. The dirt falls away. And then he lifts them out of the water gently. The yeah. grit is denser than the mushroom stuff and will sink to the bottom. And he doesn't then use that water. If he does, he just, I'd imagine, you just use the top and not get down in the yeah. wall of silt. Well, I told
2: you out. guys this year that the few that we found last spring turkey hunting, um, I did the uh, steam and freeze method. Yeah. And uh, just had them frozen. I froze them on cookie sheets. And then once they were frozen and, and dried, I just threw them into gallon Ziploc bags. And uh, great product. Very nice. happy with really? when it came back. I've out.
0: messed around with freeze mushrooms, was never that happy about it. Steaming and then freeze. So,
1: uh, another little thing I, I noticed is you really don't have to go to cheesecloth if you want to reserve that liquid. Because as you reduce that, all those uh, heavy parts, once it gets down to like the bottom inch of liquid, they just start plastering to the side of your saucepan. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it is clean as clean as a whistle. Yeah. Uh,
0: can I tell you a little more about call fat? Yes. A, uh, a emergency room doctor wrote in from Jackson, Michigan. Uh, he's an emergency room doctor in Jackson, lives in Ann Arbor. He says, there's something we need to know about, a couple things we should know about. Speaking of call fat, he says. Humans have something similar to call fat anatomically. It's called omentum, okay? And it hangs off the greater curvature of the stomach. And in overweight people, this can attain considerable size due to fat deposition. When cleaning our deer, he gives a basic anatomy class to his hunting tribe and reminds them how similar human anatomy is to whitetails and most mammals, for that matter. And he says there's some words we ought to know about for the stuff we like to talk about. The peritoneal cavity is everything below the diaphragm. The peritoneal cavity, that contains... Below the diaphragm as in uh diaphragm to anus section. Yeah, downstream. Downstream. Um, That's everything, liver, large and small intestines, spleen, stomach, and everything. So the peritoneal cavity, when you're gutting a deer... Is below above upstream is the thoracic cavity. This is where you got your esophagus, heart, lungs, and your great vessels like the aorta and vena cava. In Scotland, I hunted in Scotland one time with a gamekeeper, and they have a thing called like a they they like they gut deer out in the field. They gut deer only below the diaphragm. You know what I'm saying? They yeah. come, like It's like the word they use is like the glat. I don't know. Glat? I'm screwing it up.
1: Just because the diaphragm's holding everything else. All the stuff clean. that's going to
0: sour fast is below. You get all that out. But then in the field, you don't got diaphragm up. Uh, uh,
1: would, that, anything with the esophagus? They pull that, they cut the windpipe or anything like that and pull the windpipe out?
0: Not that I remember. Or this
1: stuff's not going to sit around, though. Right? No, but
0: I just yeah. remember it was like that was, the, he's like, when you got something, they got it like that. And we got the peritoneal and thoracic. We removed the contents of both the peritoneal and thoracic cavities. And those guys just removed the contents of the peritoneal cavity. He goes on to have a whole lot to say about getting poisoned by mushrooms. Man. Harrowing stuff, which I'll not get into right now. Um, Quick other thing I want to touch on, just from like feedback to feedback. I had two guys write in to say that in the old days, no one bled walleye. But now people bleed walleye. This guy says about 10 years ago, everyone in Lake Erie started bleeding walleye. This guy says the same thing. He fishes the western basin of Lake Erie, and he says, "20 years ago, no one bled walleye. Nowadays, everyone bleeds walleye. They're using buckets of slush ice and getting real particular about field care in Lake Erie."
1: That is interesting. That's like to hear That's that. Cool.
0: Yeah. He says, "Better texture, better flavor." When he gut when he bleeds them, he says the meat's whiter and firmer. Fish last longer.
1: I have not uh, actually been able to detect a flavor in... Those
0: ultra white fish. But yeah, I know you complain about walleye about that. Well, here's how he does it. Here's how he handles his walleye. Standard practice is to unhook illegal fish. Clip the front of the gills with pruners. Picture what he's talking about, where they come up together. Okay. Right? Below the chin. And then drop the fish head first into a five gallon bucket half filled with water. The fish will bleed out and die very quickly. Then it's removed and iced. He's enjoying great success with that method.
1: That's cool. That's really cool.
0: Now, here's a guy saying that when you break something and you gotta fix it, he says, sew it, not with thread, you dumbass, but with braided fishing line. Here's a guy who wants to know your guys' opinion on this.
2: It's smart. It's yeah, good, but it's good, just strong way stronger. Stuff.
0: Dental floss. He says this is better than dental floss. Dental floss is strong stuff. Braided fishing line is strong. Yeah, but you don't dental dental floss use braided fishing strong. line to floss your teeth. I know. But, I yeah, I carry dental floss and do my field repairs with dental floss. I've got field repairs I made way ago. Yes. I sold my sling up a long time ago with dental floss. I carry a little mini travel dental floss in my kit, and to the back of that, I stitch a needle meant for, like, fixing sailboat sails. Okay. It's got a curve to it.
1: Yeah. Little kids carry them.
0: needles because they think, they watched Rambo and they think you're going to sew yourself up. I've heard from doctors that that's not the way to go about it. When you give yourself stitches, the first thing they're going to do when you get to the doctor is undo those stitches because it's just not properly cleaned in there.
1: Right. You're, you're holding holding in
0: nasty stuff. My friend who is a doctor stitched their own dog up one time when we were hunting, and they even undid those stitches that were done by a doctor. To get everything sterile in there, yeah, and then do a redo. But we used to all dream because Rambo stitched his arm, and we used to all dream of stitching, getting it. If you would be so lucky as to get into a situation where you could sew yourself back up,
1: and then you could point to it at some party later and be, and just like, be
0: like, "I know that looks a little rough, but understand that I did that."
2: I have a um, coincidental counter story because my cousin was uh, somewhere deep in Colorado. Not real backcountry, but like, uh, what do you call it? Like four-wheel drive backcountry, right? Cross some slick spots and whatnot, and it, they got to a spot. I think they got to a snow drift, and there was like some trees down. And Anyways, they're chopping their way through it, and he put a hatchet right into his shin. Oh. Yeah. Oh. oh. And they, uh, I don't know the reason that they didn't just leave, but they stitched them up, and they stayed. And... uh he got to the hospital a couple days later, and they were like, good job. Excellent. Don't need to do anything here. Bullshit. Really? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. All right.
1: Here's one. W- was it because they looked at him, and they were like, well, you're not going to be able to pay I, but- for
2: this anyway, so. <laughs> maybe. I feel like there was an argument to that there was going to be maybe more damage done by going in there and... Messing around anymore and trying to reopen the moon, especially after that, uh, you know, the time of whatever forty-eight hours or more had passed, mm-hmm. that there was some sort of thinking like that.
1: Yeah.
0: Oof. Let's say you're out hunting. You're out hunting. Picture it. Okay. Yep. I'm setting the scene. You're out hunting. How many bullets do you got with you? <laughs> this is a great question. What is the reasoning for this number? And what arguments have guys had on the topic over the years? Ooh, I like it. How many bullets are you toting around out in the woods? Can't believe we haven't covered this. One. No, you, I cannot believe we've never talked about this because I have very uh, strong, conflicted feelings on the subject. Do
1: you remember the last second to last time we hunted BC, and we were up on the mountain, and this question just kind of came up? No, between Aaron, yourself, and myself. All three of us had 13 rounds total
0: for 10 mm. days. Do you remember? No, I don't. I wish I remembered because that number feels good to me. The hmm. number feels good to me. It's an unlucky number, which I don't believe in. So yeah, I don't so care about why that. Why do
1: we all have 13 rounds? Though?
0: Because everyone knows that 20 is too many and 10. Because uh, here's the thing. I start to okay, I get on a couple issues. Well, you go first. Why, I, I'll get around to why I carry 13 or why I carry around 13.
1: Okay. Three rounds in the magazine.
0: Oh, that's why it's 13.
1: Uh, three rounds in your pocket
0: or someplace quick access. Two in my pack. Two in my, my hip pouch. <laughs> and three, and three in the mag, two in the hip pouch. You got at least two
1: tags on most long hunts. So that could be, you know, one, two, three rounds per animal if things get sideways. And then if you fall on your butt and you whack your scope, you want a couple of rounds. Yes. To sight back in with, right? That's one of the things in my head. How that adds up to thirteen in my brain when I'm <laughs> packing from my
0: pack? Well, there's a, I don't know. What I'll touch on too is um, that there's a uh, uh, um. Societal collapse while I'm out. And I got to reckon with that. So here I am, society has collapsed. Ammunition value goes way up. I'm like, I have to, I'm going to be residing in the mountains now for the foreseeable future until I can sneak my way in and rescue my family. So then I got to factor that in and add another one, another bullet or two for that. Mm-hmm. So that's that's your like little equation? Yes. That's it. But that would mean... That If you only had a tag, let's say you don't have a deer tag and an elk tag. You got a tag. You got a deer tag. Do you then take some out? It would be, yeah. By that, it would be reduced by three. You would?
1: Yeah, I mean. I th-
0: so you do the, you you calculate that carefully.
1: No, I really don't. It's just, I, and that's the question. It's like, that's typically what I end up with in my,
2: between my person and yeah. my pack. yeah. How I get there, I do not know. But we th- these numbers are definitely more of like backpack, like I can't get back to the truck tonight. Like I, I'm like in there for a week, so if I happen to bump my scope, I got to deal
0: with it out here. No, because I do the same thing even day hunting. Yeah, even day hunting. Um, where it's like I leave my vehicle before daylight, and I know I'll get back to my rig after dark. I will find myself still carrying around the same number. And, and, and I'm going to explain how I've come to it or like sort of the, the, the loose math I'm running in my head. Um, but, Yanni, what, what's your number?
2: I would say that, yeah, if I'm out there for like, if it's like a big hunt and we're backpacking, staying out there, I'm, I'm probably like full mag. So if that's three or four rounds and then I've probably just got a sleeve of 10. Uh, you know, lately we've been shooting federal ammo, which but before shooting federal, I would just have reloaded stuff. So it would sort of depend on what sort of container I had. Yeah. So if the container held eight, I'd probably just had eight, but just some way that I can organize it. You know, I like to run those little stock. Pouches yeah, and cheap dress not suit understand have, those things. Um, but man, I mean, talk, look, talk talk about having a place. You don't have one, Steve. Where no?
0: Do I have like bullets hanging off my stock? It's like a like a bullet losing device. I think it's the other no, word. No, but for see,
2: him. minor. Yeah, uh, Giannis's enclosed. deal looks. You Inclosed. know, Yannis's
0: looks so. D- oh, you don't carry like the bandolier looking. No, bad. no, no. Yeah. Looks so put together and Benny O'Brien was running one of those bandoliers. Yeah, guess what? Because he was carrying a Giannis Patelis rigged rifle.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's like a, I call it like an
0: ammunition dispersal device.
2: <laughs> no, that one does have it on the outside, and I feel like that is a flaw. Um, but the other one I have, and I think I gave you one like that—the one from Pig Tactical—it's zipped in the pouch. Yeah,
0: when I use when I use that, I keep the ones that I would normally keep in the hip belt of my pack, in the hip pouch of my pack, in that yeah. thing.
2: Because usually, if you are in the situation. Where things got as as I don't know who coined the term, but squirly. got a little western. Squirrely. And when I think they say western, they're they talking mean, about they like maybe squirly.
0: a Western movie shootout. No, I think they mean just anything gone haywire. Because people that you people that, that use uh they'll use it in anything like like people will say, um, you know, you might be running lions and be like, oh things got a little western. I when I hear that I'm like, oh, the dog's got into a fight with a cat. Mm. If someone Packs horses. Things got a little western. Like, oh, the horses freaked out and ran down a hill and scattered yeah. gear everywhere. Gear everywhere. Got, got all it. tangled up, kicked someone in the face. Okay. Well, let's say you get into squirrely. a squirrel. That's what I'm saying. The, a synonym is squirrely. Yeah. Or a shootout. Except, no, because if someone see. told me they got into a shootout, yeah. I'd be like, I was like, holy so shit. <laughs> people are shooting back at you. The deer were.
2: So, but I feel like um, you want to have those extra rounds close. And, like, top of the top pack or top pouch on your pack is probably kind of a close spot. But, man, on the stock your gun is super, close, close. super yeah. close to where they need to go to get more rounds down range, you know. Um, but I'd say for day hunt, I'm probably, like, full mag plus another pocket full of three or four, maybe two full mags. So probably day hunt, if I'm going dawn to dusk, I might be down to seven or eight. But if I'm going back country for a week, or whatever, five days, then it's uh, in that 13 range. Full mag plus 10. Something to think about uh, as far as like your, uh, you
1: know, cartridge containers, sleeves, um, you know, the ones that like hook on your belt Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I've found one time (laughs) I watched a kid go after some antelope and he had a full box of ammunition in one hand, rifle in the other. Stopped to make his first shot, put the box ammo down, and continued off into the prairie without his box <laughs> ammo. ammo. Um, so I, f- I found that, and I just put it on his uh, truck hood. Uh, but then I found two other, like, cartridge containers, like, in the backcountry, like, going up a trail, and the same exact thing must have happened. Somebody stopped, did some shooting, had... To pull out their sleeve ammunition, and then ran off and then took off. Yeah,
0: we one time climbed up out. This is out on the Arctic slope, like where no one's around, and there's a mound, like kind of like a like a little like a like a little knob, like a little glass and tip with a smooth thing on there. And you're out in the Arctic, right? And climb up there, and sure enough, some guy lost a couple bullets up top there, lost a couple shells up there. But my my thinking on it, like I've arrived at the same number. And it's it plays out in my head like this. I don't want the, I don't need a whole box. Right? I don't need a whole box. So what'll happen is I'll put three in my magazine, not one in the chamber, but I'll put three in my magazine. So there's three. But then I'm thinking in my head, a lot of things could happen. You could even lose the magazine. It's happened where you're out hunting, if you have a detachable magazine, oh, yeah. all of a sudden I used to be so paranoid about it. I would put my magazine in, and then I would put a piece of duct tape that wrapped up around each side to secure that. I was so paranoid about dropping that magazine. It's a major complaint, I think. Well, I had one of those goofy Remington Model 700s a long time ago, and it had, like, exposed buttons that would drop the magazine. I mean, you'd look at that thing funny, and the magazine would come out. So I used to duct tape that thing on. And I'd put a whole stock on there, so the duct tape would grab that stock material. And I was so nervous about losing that thing all the time. I'd click it in there and put a piece of tape on it. I could still get it off in a hurry, but in a in a situation like that, I'm not going to be reloading that anyways. Then you're just dropping single rounds and yeah, you know, like I don't need it. I don't need to be able to get the magazine off in a hurry. I'm not going to pull the. I'm not going in the heat of the moment pull the magazine out, reload the magazine, stick the magazine back in. I'm just going to be dropping in singles. But what if you had a second
2: magazine? And, sure. that, and that's how you carried your three extra rounds in your pocket.
0: I still wouldn't because then I'd be like, yeah, I'm not going to tote that magazine around. Then what'd I do? So well, I got three. Plus, there.
1: Nobody I n- ever knew until like this day and age ever thought the 70 bucks for another magazine was. Worth. Everybody was like, yeah, that'd
2: be nice. But,
0: but it be Nobody expensive. ever wanted to pay it. Yeah. yeah.
2: I just never had a detachable magazine gone, but I kind of almost went that route one time just so I could. Cause I saw it in action once where the dude, I was like, I had tagged out the client. We was like the last day. It was a great hunt. We, uh, in the morning, it's the fifth day of the hunt. And in the morning we're all jacked up drinking coffee, getting ready to go out. And we got one tag left to go and out walks one of the clients. And he's got like dress shirt on, pressed khakis, like ready to go to the airport. We're like, what's up? He's like, I'm done. I'm done. It ain't happening for me. We're like, we got a whole day, bro. Let's go. Nope, 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 nope. So it like literally takes us till wet, way after first light until we're like, get your gear on. All his buddies like rally and we get out there. And it's just one of those weird mornings where at like 10 a.m., there's a five point bull out feeding in the quake. He's like the first ridge you peek over. And we're like, see, told you, you know, <laughs> all you had to do is get out here. But, uh, Ethan, who you met this year in uh, Colorado, was carrying his the guy's extra magazine, and he shoots, 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 and then literally it was like I just saw his hand come up, and (laughs) Ethan goes, "Slap!" Gotta be kidding! And that extra mag like gets put in there, and somewhere down the line of you know six or seven shot, finally he hit
0: him, and um, bull went down. Yeah. See here, part of when I'm doing all this like math in my head, I don't go out like. I'm like I need one of these bullets. Like to go out making a plan about how much shooting you're going to do. I feel like you've already and, and as a Latvian you'll appreciate this. You've already set you've already sent a message out into the universe. To be like that you've got it all planned out about how much just how many bullets you're ready to shoot. Yeah, but you don't plan for
2: the best of times. You have to plan for the worst of times. Hear me
0: out. I am, but I'm not going into it fixated on how I'm going to get maximum rounds out (laughs) the end of the barrel, right? I put my three in my magazine. Then I, in my hip belt, I used to put two in my hip pouch of my pack. Now I like to, depending, my vinyl harness has a little pocket. Right. And I'll put often one there. Cause that's with me, like no matter what. I don't like to leave my pack. I don't like to like get up and be like, okay, you know, this next hill's the hill. Let's leave our packs. I don't like to do. I keep my pack with me because you just never know where you're gonna wind up when things go bad. But I, I tuck one there, and nowadays I tuck one there and I tuck one in the hip pouch of my pack. So now I got three in the magazine, one right here, one right there. So I got them all over the damn place, and then I got. Then I take a sleeve, half of a box, and and that's in my pack. And what I'm prepared for is if I'm hunting with other people, I'm especially, like, wanting them because I'm picturing that they're going to cripple up something, and then we're going to be trying to chase it down. Right. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I have much. And I'm also mindful of societal collapses. Well, think
1: about Rambo, too. Right to go back there. Mm-hmm. He didn't. He pour out gunpowder
0: onto his wound and cauterize his wound. I don't. Yeah, I'm gonna start carrying an extra one for that. So I carry him for societal class. I'm gonna carry him for that, and then like you said, knocking your rifle off and needing more. Yeah, I th- I think about that.
1: The backpack thing. I I say snarky comments when uh, I'm hunting with somebody. This is always almost always archery season, and for some reason they drop their pack and then take off after the elk and what I would like to do is leave that pack there and then that they would be forced to go learn that hard lesson of trying to find their pack in the dark yeah but that would also make me stay on the mountain much longer when I'm trying to get out of there so I pick it up and I say something like yeah some small child forgot their knapsack over there
0: Mm -hmm. I was talking with someone not long ago who I can't remember who Yanni might remember, leaves TIE Surveyor's tape onto their pack to help them find it when they lose it because they've left it somewhere. I've done that in the past. I think
1: they're missing the greater
0: lesson there. Yeah, you think that, like, you get up and you think, like, it's all going to happen right at this little rise. And then you wind up hours later in the pitch black miles away without your pack.
2: But it doesn't even take that, man. I mean, when it's pitch black, it can be 50 yards, but you think it might have been 200 yards. Like, I've been, I know that I've been within like seeing distance of my pack in the dark and with your headlamp, and you're just sitting there going, shit, shit, shit. Yes.
0: When I do leave my pack, I drop a waypoint on my GPS. Mm. If some real, like, if you're running like a very heavy pack, right, and it just really, and you need to have like mega optimum stealth, All right? Day one of a ten day hunt or something,
1: yeah. And you are yeah,
0: like, pack. dude, this pack is too much. Like, I can't put a creep on right now. I am gonna have to leave the pack. Then I'll that's why I like having the then I'll t- put some essentials in my bino harness and mm-hmm. the little pockets and whatnot on there. Take a GPS thing and throw that unit in my pocket so I can go find some bitch when I am, you know, wind up way later, uh, Cal. Yes, sir. This guy, uh, we had talked about camo undies. Yeah. Remember that? Yep. This guy wrote in, he's got a bone to pick with you. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well... What's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To so get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater.
1: upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season... Liquidiv.com and you use code MeatEater at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com Meat MeatEater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash MeatEater. Make sure you use code eater. To choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. He owns camouflage. He owns first light camouflage boxers. Yes. But he says both times when he's winning to make his order, he tried to buy a solid, but it was out and bought camo, and everyone thinks he chose camo. So he's like, he thinks you have a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy going on there to say that people buy camo. This guy is saying that it wasn't his intention, but that's what he has, but it's okay because his wife thinks it's hilarious. Goes on to say, I'm not calling Cal a liar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well, yeah, not, not to say I'm right and he's wrong, but I, I, I feel like I did say when we first started out, that's the way it was. Like The camo went faster than the solids. Now I think it is the opposite way. And, and I could be totally wrong, but yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, I do, we have such a limited offering of colors. Mm-hmm. Like right now, you know, I'm on like into week two of living in hotels out of my same bag. So it's, I also have camouflage undies with me and. so you can, burn through the other ones. Yeah. And I can be like, Oh.
0: Literally burned. Through. <laughs> <laughs> Dry earth is gone. Time to wear the fusion. Here's a good letter. This is a, this guy's an attorney this this is this is an, an attorney a lawyer with an interesting practice he has a practice focused on hunters guides and outfitters um and wanted to talk about our permissions episode a law practice yeah really wow um, he I'm an attorney with a practice focused on helping hunters guides and outfitters in numerous ways Nathaniel is his name um he's responding to the permissions podcast. Mo- like like states have, all 50 states have a version of the Recreational Use Act. This is helpful for people to know. Listen to what I'm saying. If you're at work, stop working. Just listen. Um, all 50 states have a version of a Recreational Use Act. It confers liability protection onto landowners who allow free access to their property for recreational purposes. This means, he says, if I go knock on a door, which I frequently do in Colorado and Kansas, in Kansas where I hunt and practice, and the landowner allows me to hunt, fish, hike, etc., without charging me for the privilege to do so, the landowner is protected from liability. But recreational, what was the word I was using again? RUSs? Oh, recreational, yeah, so... Anyhow, this liability, now I got myself totally confused. But he wants to caution this. It extinguishes the protections if there is compensation of, quote, of any kind given to the landowner. If this guy, we had a guy write in a letter that he offers landowners. He says, hey, man, if you let me hunt, I'll provide a number of services to you. I will post your land if it's not already post. I will pick up garbage. Okay, he's gonna do these. He's gonna do these favors to the landowner. He's saying once you enter into an arrangement like that, you negate the liability protection provided to that landowner for giving free access to his land because you've now entered into a brokered arrangement. Wow! And that'd be so hard to disprove or prove one way or another. He says the compensation. Exemption would likely not apply if the work was done after the season as a thank you to the landowner. Oh. But if you enter into it and say, you let me hunt and I'll do this, you might not be protected by your, the landowner might not be protected by his state's li, imp, like de facto liability waiver of a person who allows free access to their land. This guy says, if an individual is going to hunt on the land of another and pay or compensate, he absolutely advises having liability waivers. He goes on to say waivers are a whole can of worms, depending on your own state, but um, he still advises it. I know that a liability waiver is very powerful in Alaska. That's not him talking, that's me talking. The National Agricultural Law Center has a great database on the RUS for every state. So he's just saying um, you can go on to that the National Agricultural Law Center and look up what your state covers. If you're a landowner what all your state covers for you with liability when you let people on your land free of charge. What do you think about that? Good to know. It's good to know but
1: also nothing you would ever put into that landowner conversation, right?
0: Yeah. Well, well,
1: Oh, I, I want you to pay you. about
0: this. <laughs> I would love to pay you, but I cannot because, yeah. It, it, but um,
2: but you could add it in. Say it, you got the permission, and then it was going to be free. Hey, just so you know, <clears throat> yeah. I told you I'd feed those
1: cows for you.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to do it at, in three months. You know what? I could I could picture throwing it out like this. You get a permission, right? There's a feeling of mutual goodwill. You get a permission. There's no strings attached to the permission They're like happy to allow you to hunt my place, son. I could picture saying, um, oh, you know, what's cool is, you know, our state does have a protection to you. You're giving me free access to your land. Um, you're by state law protected from liability. If I were to hire myself out here. Yeah. He might be like, really great. Thanks. And that could kind of pay it forward for yeah. somebody else. Down thanks the road. for, he says, thanks. Then he might say something like, thanks for sharing. Here's a guy that spells Yannis, Y-A-N-N-I-S, which is a good spelling. Not right, but it's a good spelling. Phonetically. Says he's got squirrels coming out of his ears in Illinois, and he also says this. We often talk about doing autopsies on our kills to determine what organs you hit. That's not correct. An autopsy is done on a human. A necropsy is done on an animal. This guy says, I performed all kinds of necropsies. Luckily, I have never had to perform an autopsy. So keep that in mind. That kind of falls
1: into uh, my uh, cannibal uh, thinking from a couple months back.
0: You remember that? Yeah, you can preview it with me again, but I'm still not totally sure how I feel about it.
1: Yeah, because, I mean, it's not bulletproof. but right? you remember this, Giannis? Yeah. The uh, uh, folks that say... Uh, I shot a hole in it. Hunting is murder. Okay. <laughs> right? And well, you know, we as humans say murderers are murderers, but if you are a murderer who then eats
0: the person that you murder, you are called a cannibal. Which is I regard as being even worse. I never looked at it being like um like oh at least he ate it. <laughs> <laughs> Like I don't feel like when I hear of a murderer right who then cannibalized the victim, I'm not like, well, you know, yeah, yeah. I Didn't do go disagree. I do disagree with murdering uh, people, but however, you know, at least he put it to good use. It's like that never enters my mind. But I think say, those okay, are
1: continue. just our societal standards here. Right? Continue. If you go down to uh, Papua New Guinea, where they had, uh, you know, yeah. some some structure for that.
0: Yeah. It yeah. was an it's, important thing for certain age classes. Yeah, it had like religious or spiritual significance, right? So you're saying though, you're saying if a animal rights person is going to say like, "Oh, you murdered those deer," that the language in some way reflect the fact that you ate it, and not use that word. You want a word akin to to, to cannibal that you that you cannibalized it.
1: Yeah, because I mean, is murder? I mean, it is murder. I I don't know. I mean, that's why I float out these big ideas to you guys so you can fine-tune them
0: for me. To stretch them and poke them. Yeah. Cabeza de Vaca, who is perhaps the first European... Head cow? Yeah. (laughs) Cabeza de Vaca. Okay. He was a Spaniard who was shipwrecked um, on the Florida Peninsula. 1500s, like way early and everyone died off and was killed off and eventually it was just Cabeza de Vaca and he to survive he started to head west and walked all the way to the Spanish settlements in Mexico probably went insane along the way survived all number of harrowing things it was a long journey Picture what I'm talking about. Yeah. From the Gulf Coast to the Spanish settlements in Mexico in the early 1500s, Cabeza de Vaca walked it. Around Houston, it seems around Houston, perhaps, became the first European to ever lay eyes on bison, 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 otherwise known as the Buffler. Cabeza de Vaca. One of the groups Cabeza de Vaca encountered would they would burn their dead. And then make like a shake, a milkshake of the ash and drink the ash. Wow. Like like a clay shake, but folks. A folk shake. You want to read about some crazy shit, man. Read about Cabeza de Vaca. I write about him in my Buffalo book.
1: Well, just think of the thing. Like There would be some serious backtracking. Just right now, if you try to walk through the panhandle of Florida, all the swamps and lakes. he he crossed the Mississippi. We've drained so much
0: of that. Yeah.
1: Louisiana,
0: same, like. And he he describes a lot of wildlife. People put a lot of stock into, like, historians, when they're trying to get a general picture of what was where, they put a lot of, like, faith into what Cabeza de Vaca described along the way. But he encountered these big, curvy-horned, shaggy-haired cattle Around what seems to be around Houston.
1: Wow. What was the timeline? How long did that take him?
0: It was a long ass walk, but I can't remember exactly how many months. Jeez. It's like a three page footnote in my Buffalo book, the, the the saga of Cabeza De Vaca. And also how he came up how he wound up with that handle. He's referenced elsewhere, though, right? All over. Like, yeah, it's famous because, it's like, it's like the first glimpse. What people are really interested in is the location and prevalence of, of uh, the location and prevalence of Native American communities along the coast. Because what you realize is that you know smallpox traveled ahead of the settlements, so. Usually when you look at like when the Spanish were going into areas and when the English later the English went into areas, you think of them like they're doing their explorations and they're seeing it for the first time. And you think of like what they're seeing as being what was there. But the way smallpox works, like Cabeza de Vaca probably, right, introduced disease along the way. So oftentimes you'd have be that you'd have a European stumble through some area, but then it didn't really get like explored for a hundred years later. And now it seems like like when the English were going into areas, they were encountering probably about 10% of the humans that would have been there had they passed those areas 150 years earlier. Wow. Because of how many people smallpox carried off. So if you look at like what Cabeza de Vaca describes as he travels the coast, for just like, like how many people he's encountering, different groups, different languages, different cultural practices, and then you go and compare that to people traveling that same thing 100 years later, you'd think they were in a different country. Wow! For what they're encountering, one abundance of animals. Pe- there's a school of thought that believes the abundance of animals is much higher later, and the presence of humans is much much lower. And there's an implied correlation, sure, between that depeopling, but not kind
1: of historically how we've been thinking yeah, about but it. But that—that's interesting.
0: That you carried off ninety percent of the human predators. Of course, you're going to see us in a hundred. Of course, you're going to see us gain, a spike in game. Yeah. There's a guy, so when you look at like where Lewis and Clark found the greatest abundances of wildlife, historians later went and looked and and found sort of the no-man land, the contact, the the edges of contact between warring tribes. So like the areas that were very hostile environments seemed to be the areas, this is just a, a, a theory someone has, that where Lewis and Clark described the greatest abundance of game were the borderlands between warring tribes. So you'd get to where the, like, you'd get to a buffer of the Crow and Blackfeet. Right. And that sort of no man's land between their two core territories, you would find a lot of game because It was very dangerous to hang out in that spot. Because when you were in that area, you were in the war zone.
1: Yeah, I'm shaking my head because this is like... It makes total sense, like but head, it has never been explained that yeah, way. Yeah, like to, the
0: headwaters yeah. region of the Missouri.
1: And you've read that, st- like, just doing your Montana history, right? It was like, oh, yeah, and then Blackfeet would carry off Sioux here, and yep. Nez
0: Perce would come over. but. So that that yeah. headwaters region of the Missouri was a, like a hotly contested ground where, like, you had the Crow would come from the south and go up in there. The Blackfeet would come from the north and west and go in there. The Lakota would, would come from the east and range in there. And if you went in there, you were going to be mixing it up with other folks. And it was just, and it was like a game rich environment. Here's something interesting. we were talking about morality on a podcast quite a while ago. You were there, the Bozeman event. Oh, the, the live event. We're talking about what makes a good person. Uh, which is way off topic for us, but we're talking about what makes a good person. My brother brought up something called the Kant's categorical imperative. Okay, he didn't explore it, but he touched on it. And this guy writes in to take uh, to kind of take that idea to task. He's saying that Kant's um, categorical imperative is a way to determine the morality of an action by imagining the consequences of any individual action if it was a universal law. So he says, let's go out and set out to prove why littering is wrong, okay? So to to apply Kant's categorical imperative to it, you would say, well, what if everyone littered? What would the world look like, right? So he goes, therefore, you can arrive at the fact that littering is immoral. If everyone did it, it would be a total shit show. My kids have a book called what if everyone did that? And one of the things it explores is what if everyone littered? What if everyone like talked out of turn, which is another problem we have on this show. So, uh, so he goes on to say, so if you want to prove, he goes, he goes on to that. He brings us around to hunting. He says, most arguments against hunting tend to be based on irrational emotions or preconceived assumptions. But when you apply the categorical imperative to it, it does make it seem, in his view, that hunting becomes immoral. Because he says, what if everyone hunted? But he hasn't thought about it good enough. Because just the fact, when you hunt, you're still subject to the laws. So if everyone hunted, we wouldn't have, it wouldn't mean that there's more death it doesn't mean there's more death and less game it would just mean that you'd have greatly reduced opportunity cuz like if everyone hunted i was like okay so that means everyone now has to apply for all the tags right reduced opportunity all, yeah we will all draw a lot less tags but Increased it doesn't regulation. but it doesn't make like you can't use Kansas's categorical imperative to say hunting's immoral because if everyone hunted all the animals would be dead because in this country it's all regulated Yeah. If everyone hunted, it would just mean that there's like a lot less opportunity and you're going to wait in the longer line to get your bit of access. A lot more cash for state agencies. A lot more cash for state (laughs) agencies, which makes it seem more moral. Yeah. I see what he's going for, but he just didn't think it through far enough. Guy's name's Brad. I've generally had good luck. I've generally had very good luck with Brad's in my life. Interesting. I'm thinking particularly of Brad Cross and Brad Chester, who were both big BMX guys growing up. Oh, like when the movie I the Rad, name, and Rad rhymes with Brad. When I see the name Brad, I generally feel like I'm, a, I'm like, uh, like, like I would like the guy. They're already starting up with a little bit of credit. You know, Brad. Brad trying to come in and hit us hard with Kansas Category Comparative. Do you have any thoughts on that, Giannis? I don't.
1: Yeah, because that, you know. Really? Just nothing. Everybody litters. I, well, no.
2: I mean, I think you. Makes uh,
1: sense. But that crosses the boundary of, well, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be higher fines for littering. But if everybody just keeps littering, that doesn't quite hold water, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: I guess if everybody uh poached. Yes.
0: But we already. But consider, we already know that poach is in We've already arrived right, at that. Yeah. Yeah, so Kansas, is categorized and my eye. Um, here's a good one. This guy is aware of the fact that there are turkey grand slams. I don't know if he's aware of the fact that I happen to be a, tur- a turkey. I can't remember what turkey slam I have. I think you have this grand. Or no, super. the royal. No, we're we're gonna figure it out. Okay, so slams. A lot of people hate slams, and for very good reason, (laughs) because it it introduces the element. I got to back up. Uh, uh, There's slams are a thing that someone made up or another someone or another made up this idea that you'd go like, okay, there's different kinds of turkeys, and if one were to get one of all those kind of turkeys, that person would be a slam holder. Okay. So with, with turkeys, there, there's a thing called a turkey grand slam. And to get a turkey, so there are five, five. Yanni's holding up four, but there's five. A grand, okay. Is there just a North
1: America grand slam?
0: Hold tight. There's, there are five subspecies, which some people say aren't actually subspecies. There are five types of wild turkeys. You have the eastern of the eastern U.S. You have the Osceola of the southern half of the Florida Peninsula. You have the Miriams and Rio from the southwestern U.S. And then you have the Goulds turkey from northern Mexico and the Sky Island mountain ranges of southern Arizona and New Mexico. If you were to get, and the Goulds is kind of the hardest one to get. Because of availability. like Most people who get a Goulds turkey get it in Mexico. So a grand slam is that you get the four kinds of wild turkeys that are around and avail- widely available in the U.S. A royal slam is if you get the Goulds too. A world slam is if you go down and get another whole other species of turkeys, which is called the oscillated. Not to be confused with the os- Osceola. The oscillated turkey, which is down in the Yucatan Peninsula, Guatemala, you know the Mayan areas, there's the oscillated. Um, so that's the world slam. That's a whole other bird. They used to think there used to be a – There's possibly was a sixth subspecies of turkey called the Mexican turkey, and that is the one that's probably been domesticated for thousands of years, and that's the one that when the Spanish conquistadors came to the New World – that is the domestic turkey that the Aztecs had. Probably doesn't, didn't even, Maybe didn't even exist in the wild at the time, but that was where they derived the domestic turkey, which was then taken back to Europe and is the domestic turkeys we know today. So turkeys were, are a New World species. They were domesticated thousands of years ago by indigenous groups in Mexico and Central America. Europeans came, borrowed the birds, took the birds back to Europe, bred up all kinds of crazy variants on the wild turkey, and then brought those back to the New World, reintroduced them, and that's when you go and buy a turkey in the grocery store, that's what you're buying. And they think that that original domestication was perhaps a turkey subspecies that is no longer around. I think some people think it was the Goulds. Maybe it was the Goulds. Slash meat eater. This show is brought to you in part by BetterHelp. Now, we all carry around different stressors, big ones, little ones. When you keep these things bottled up, it can start to affect you in a very negative way. Well, therapy is a great space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Like, figure it out. That means figure it out with someone who's impartial, who's able to sit down and hear what you have to say and think it through with you. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire. To get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, there's no there's no such thing. It's like you're not so tough. You're not so tough that it doesn't do you some good to talk to somebody now and then about what's on your mind, okay? Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MeatEater today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash MeatEater to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. The question being that this guy has is... um why isn't there a deer elk grand slam
2: can i add one thing about the super slams or this all the slams here with the uh, turkey thing because i was just on the national wild, wild turkey federation website and they have a canadian slam if you kill all available birds in one uh province of canada would be a canadian slam which would it. be like two yeah or one two Oh, okay and then the mexican is uh Gold's Rio, and... uh Oscillated. Think, no, Merriam's, all down in Mexico. Really?
0: So there's... There, okay, yeah, continue. Yeah,
2: there's more turkeys around. But then there's a Super Slam, which is the all states besides Alaska. And uh and the reason I'm mentioning this is because I was like, man, that's got to be freaking hard, right? Well, the last time, according to the uh books here on the NWTF website... Oh, back up,
0: back up, back up. You didn't. You, I, I I got I got confused because um, looking at something else. But there's other slams too, though, for turkeys. You didn't get into like grand, right? Oh, I thought you covered that. Oh, okay. Oh, so you're doing just the ones in, in addition. The one to that you hadn't covered. Yeah. Okay. So tell so me you, again you, the you, name. You had it right. That you're saying a name for getting a turkey in all 50 states is a what? U.S. Super Slam. U.S. Super Slam. I'm jealous of someone that's done that. I well, can't explain why. Listen. There are, according to these records, there's eight people that have done it, killed a turkey in 49 states. Mm-hmm. I like my brothers. When I explain this to them, they just, they can't even begin to understand. They don't like anything that that they don't like anything where you introduce a sports type mentality, right? Like a keeping track, sportsy, competitive stuff. As um, Thomas McIntyre said, it's pissing in the cathedral. Yeah, in their opinion. But I like it a yeah. little teeny bit. I like it a little teeny bit. <laughs> <laughs> I like it
2: for the. I feel like if that's the way you're going to go and uh, travel the United States and get to go to 49 different states and meet the people in 49 different states and see 49 different landscapes that turkeys live in, like it's well worth it. Well worth thing to get into, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, you by the, at the end of it,
0: aspect. if you were to kill a turkey in all 49 states, you would have killed turkeys in 11 states that did not historically have turkeys. Right. Because they think at the time of European contact, we had turkeys in maybe 39 states. So, yeah. So, in that way, to go stress that, you'd be, like, looking at, like, just how good turkeys are doing. But the deer one, I didn't know. Yanni's going to break down what's up with deer.
2: Well, like I thought before I did my little 10 minutes of research here, it's like there's this idea of a deer slam out there. Floating around. Floating around. But no, like I, somebody uh, involved with QDMA, they tried to go with a whitetail slam. And our buddy Mark Kenyon actually wrote a piece on it five years ago and uh, where they break down eight subspecies of whitetail across our continent. That's not... Really? Yeah. So, again, that's why I'm saying it's like this idea that people are pushing there for whatever reason, but it's never really. Because they want it to become a thing. They want it to become a thing. Same thing with the with the regular, uh, not the whitetail slam, but the regular deer slam would be Columbia blacktail, Sitka blacktail, uh, regular whitetail, Coos whitetail, mule deer,
0: right? Five. I've done that accidentally. Right. I'm an accidental deer slam holder. Now I'm one away, Cal. How about you? Oh, I'm far off the
1: mark. <laughs> far off the mark. <laughs> um, But the reason some people don't like this is the argument of, uh, oh, you're just a collector.
0: Right? Yeah, that's maybe what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to start saying not that I've... I'm going to make it into a food thing. I'm going to say that I've eaten... I have to, the royal slam, be like, what's that? Be like, I've eaten all, um, I've self-harvested and eaten all five subspecies of turkey.
1: Made turkey tetrazzini out of everyone.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, ready for this one? There's nothing, I'm not asking you guys to add anything to this. It's just a thing this guy has. This guy hunts the Texas hill country. Cool country, I think. You know, his family owns, you know, 50-some acres of prime hill country. Over his life, he says that it's become that um, he's just seen a lot of change over his life as the whole place has become fenced. His subject line is, high fence is screwing my fair chase. Oh, He says, when you drive down a road, you're driving down corridors between high fences. And he says it just has had dramatic impacts on sort of the movements of deer. And has really kind of like put the screws to someone who doesn't fence. Just the interruption of deer movements. And he also gets into the interruption. And then the other things that have happened on the land, like introducing exotics onto your fence property. Just has really changed the area, in his opinion, for the worst. Um, He tried to bring all this up on a thing called the Texas Bowhunter Forum and got thrown off. That's interesting. Interesting.
1: I I have been on those lanes though, you know. I'm sure you guys have too. Driving right?
0: down between the fences. Yeah. You know, I haven't really spent that much time there.
1: Yeah, buddy. Yards has a has a place out there, and gone hunted with him a couple of times. And and his place is not high fence, but in order to get to his place, that that is the scene that pops in my head. Right, you got ten foot tall chain link fences on both sides of the road and so if an animal did want to move around they'd have to basically walk down a very very thin shoulder or right down the middle of the road to go from there is no point a to point b right it's all yeah following some you know ranch map from a hundred years ago or
0: the flip side of it is is that there's probably if you went and tallied up the number of deer there's probably more deer than before they just live differently. They don't move around as wild animals anymore. But like, it's not that there's, it's not that you probably can't go and look and be like, oh, so there's no deer. There's tons of deer that has all been turned into livestock.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking of the feed so, change so, too. Right? Yeah,
0: and so something like the numbers, like, the, like you can't say the species is hurting because they're probably doing fantastic. Like each one of these fence places probably has more deer than it did in the past or else they wouldn't be fencing it. But they're just not, like uh, some of their wildness is gone Yeah, because they, they can't roam.
1: Be interesting to see like how much corn go, like silage corn goes to the state of Texas. Cause it's such a heavy, you know, feeding, uh, you know, game yeah. feeding state. It'd right? be really,
0: yeah. The the number of ca- like the the the, 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 the poundage of, or like the calorie count of how much food comes in. Yeah. And then again, man, it's like that in some ways, everybody has got its ups and downs yeah because in some ways that shit makes the desert bloom too right because like a lot of wildlife feeds off that there's a lot of wildlife feeds off that cycle it's just different right it's different you, yeah. some, some people might go and look like yeah man got a lot more quail now than we did probably way more water yeah. too well yeah because people do water yeah. yeah you bring in a bunch of corn you bring in a bunch of food and you bring in a bunch of water so people might look and be like yeah man we now have a lot more quail than we did when I was a kid. We got a lot more javelina than we did when I was a kid. We got a lot more white-tailed deer than we have when I was a kid. Um, there's just like the landscape is supporting a larger biomass under the system of all of the feed. Where you're turning like marginal habitat, you're taking like what's missing. Like what what are the things that are missing that would make this just place explode with numbers? You'd be like, well, food and water. Okay that well let's fix it let's bring in food and water you wind up with something like very different but you can't really readily go in and just attack it from top to bottom because if you just if you go like oh how are we going to quantify the health of the ecosystem let's do it by counting up how many pounds of animals are running around out here you'd look at that and you'd be like it's made a big improvement there's a lot more poundage of wildlife Yeah, you would. But other people might be like, yeah, but everything about it, like the way it uses the landscape, how it's moved, just all the dynamics, you know, you've interrupted all that. And some people might be like, "Okay, you're right. Well, there's the negative. And then they would be like, but a lot of animals. Yeah. Everything in life is so complicated. That's what I've found, Cal. (laughs) Um, This guy, we're talking about shooting fawns. Someone's like, "What's the morality behind shooting fawns?" I'm saying I don't, I don't think there's any. It's not a moral. There's no moral decision to be made. This guy writes in to say that we shouldn't be harvesting animals that haven't achieved skeletal maturity because you're not getting maximum output out of the animal. He thinks it's premature to shoot a fawn
2: Mm.
0: to pull. So you shoot. We're talking about a fawn. You're talking about like a deer. Drops around Memorial Day, right? And then you shoot it in the fall. You know, like you'll often hear people say they shot a buck. This is just like real basic stuff for people who aren't tuned into this kind of junk. You'll hear people say, like, you hear people talk about deer. Like they'll be like, I killed a buck. He was one and a half. He was two and a half. He was three and a half. The reason they're always throwing in the half is because they're born in the spring and typically hunted in the fall. So you always got like the half. So when people say you're shooting a fawn, the real time was you're shooting a six month old. Thing and you talk about a species, with a life expectancy of two. It's not that little, but it's little. And it, you always hear like uh, deer of the year or fawn of the year, fawn of the year yeah. born that spring. Yeah. So when you shoot one and the thing weighs sixty pounds or whatever, and you get a forty, per, you know, a forty percent yield, right? Um, he's saying that it's just like a premature harvest.
2: Yeah, and I thought we kind of covered that. I mean, that was kind of one of my gripes with even shooting calf elk. Everybody's like, "Oh, the veal, the veal." I'm like, "Yeah, but you get like." fifty or sixty pounds, man. And if you shoot a two year old cow, you're almost doubling that usually. Yeah, for sure you are.
0: I like his term skeletal maturity. Here's a hard one to answer. This guy wants to know Adam. Um mixed experiences with Adams throughout my life, but I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt. He says like, do you think each state has its own hunting subculture? Does a state have a hunting culture? I would say no
2: for states, but uh, regions do. You think so? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah.
0: Definitely. Expand on that. Man. Um, expound. Just, would you just, say expound? I guess either works, right? You can, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. No, I've grappled with that in the past. You can expound or expand. I don't care, mm-hmm. Yanni. Do what everyone seems right um, to.
2: Hunting culture by region or by state. Um, I think that you could probably find little, like, nuances about uh, hunting culture in certain states and be like, oh, yeah, that's just, like, a total Idaho thing, you know. But I think yeah. it, it probably more, more likely you'd be able to break the country across, like, the classic regions of Northwest, Southeast, Northeast, you know, Midwest, um, and sort of find things that are, you know. Uh, maybe tactics that are more accepted one mm-hmm. place or another. Like you and I grew up.
0: I don't know. Did you guys do money drives, deer drives? Growing oh, up, oh, it's so weird you brought that up because I was the guy rode in and wanted to know the morality of deer drives. Right. Like, dude. I mean, that's like that's. How, I mean, I was kind of. I grew up in deer drive culture.
2: Yeah, and we do. I mean, we did. It was funny because you'd just like you go right from the evening before. You'd still be in full archery mode. Setting up stands and hunting deer on the ground, trying to get close. And then the next day, you would just like flip the switch and it's like dudes just pushing through the woods, running deer, and you're, you know, taking running shots at deer. I mean, I killed my first deer. He was screaming by me at
0: 10 or 20 yards, you know. And we didn't switch into drive mode. We had a 10 day or two week rifle season, whatever it was. Um, We didn't switch into drive mode to the last couple days. Oh, really? And you were kind of an a hole if you were out driving deer early in the season. Oh. We do we do open, we would sit open in the morning for two to three, four hours. Yeah. Doug, they have like in Wisconsin and the Doug Dern property, Doug Dern family property, they have a, a, a light drive, a gentle drive that they call a the mooch. And they'll start mooching the second day of the season. But it's mm-hmm. a gentle drive. It's not like dudes lined up banging pots and pans and stuff, you know, which yeah. is how we kind of grew up driving deer. Not with pots and pans, but it was like, yeah, it was a lot of guys in the woods,
2: but that okay. A couple, couple, uh, well, your guys' camp stuff too, yeah, couple, like
1: the, your, the camp that you went to, yeah. Uh, I was going to bring yeah, up just that. a
2: couple differences that I've seen between just the two regions that I've hunted a lot in, which would be the Midwest and then the uh, Intermountain Rockies. Um, but like, uh, deer poles or meat hanging poles, right. Like we have a picture of every single year that I've been at that Wisconsin deer camp of most of the deer unless someone left early and took theirs but hung up on a pole and all of us standing in front of it and it's like a picture that's taken not really to like be like oh look at everything we killed but it's sort of just it commemorates in um archives the hunt mm-hmm. right and like who was there how many deer were killed so that you know it was a good year bad year um yeah, try attracts time yeah
0: it's but like a, a lot a,
2: like so, and then if you compare that to out west, like deer drives, and I think meat poles are by, by a lot of like western hunters are, are kind of considered like not, not cool, you know, not part not, of the culture. Yeah, not part of the culture.
1: Well, the deer drive thing, like we did some, some drives here and there for the large part, I, w- I would say completely unsuccessful, but you're dealing with bigger chunks of ground, right? Typically, right? Yeah. It's just not as manageable.
0: Because you're generally driving, like when you're doing deer drives, you're driving places that have way more deer per unit of space than you're going to have in the West.
1: And we always had way fewer people, too. I feel like if you really want to find success on a drive, the number of hunters you have to have has to be way higher. And we just never had... You know that's why the whole deer camp thing is so. It was always so
0: weird to me in in the West because it was like,
1: yeah, but we get would everybody do, together. We We'd would have do like
0: artisan artisan small batch drives too. Like the first deer I killed when I was thirteen was on an artisan small batch drive. It was a four man drive, and that's when you know how the deer, you know what they do. Yeah, you know how they respond. Yeah. So like, there's this creek, Mosquito Creek, and there's this big sort of bend in the creek, and when deer get bumped out of that bend, they go up, you know, the second ridge down every year. And every year, someone's going to kill a deer coming out of that bend in the creek going up that second ridge. And so then it just is a matter of you say, hey, at 10, I'll post up on the ridge, and you go down in the big bend, and, you know, it's going to work. You can't do it the next day. It definitely won't work, but every year it'll work. Yeah. So that's like kind of a different sort of drive than the big pop banging drives we'd also do. Uh, uh, um, a, a subculture that I used to struggle with, but now I understand it, is when you see hunting pictures from Arizona and Utah, why how there's so many people in the picture, like a Grip and Grin. And Arizona yes. Grip and Grin will have a dozen guys. Utah, the same way. And I used to be like, why is that? Then I realized it's because, you, they, you know, you don't have huge populations of wildlife there. And it's hard to draw tags. So to draw like an elk tag in Arizona, is, you know, if you live in Arizona and you draw an elk tag, it's a big deal. And a lot of your buddies didn't draw an elk tag.
1: Yeah, so if you want to hunt every year, so, you're helping somebody out.
0: Yeah, so we now that we like have friends in Arizona who are, have sort of a tribe, you know, like a group of guys they hang out with, that they hunt with, when one of them draws... It's just a it's a thing that yeah we're all going to do it. So if someone so draws some sweet elk tag, everyone wants to get involved and everybody wants to go hunt. So all of a sudden he's got eight buddies that all want to go too, because someone's got a tag. Now if you get up in a state like like Colorado with like you know vastly more elk than any other state, everybody's got an elk tag. You're just out hunting in onesies, twosies, threesies. You don't need to have eight guys. Because those eight guys all got their own tags. You're like, you do your thing, I'll do mine. And it's more individualistic, but it's like a communal form of hunting down there, and that's why you see these big packs of dudes standing behind some animal. I couldn't do it. Drive
1: drive me insane. Well, Having they also but they also radio. Yeah, in? they
0: radio hunt down there. Yeah. So generally, what you're doing is everybody's out glassing. Um. They're out glassing, and then when they find something, they just through text messages or radios convey its location.
1: Yeah, I could just like see a way, it's like
0: a hunting culture.
1: It, yeah, and and I under yeah, I, I imagine it'd be very successful for me. It would just like lead to paralytic indecision,
0: <laughs> <laughs> information <laughs> overload. Yes, and then you got like that, like again, like that South Texas hunting culture where there's no public land or virtually no public land. Um, it's general practice to use corn to bring deer out of an area that's otherwise very difficult to find them in to concentrate them. It's general practice to hunt out sta- of elevated tripod stands or whatever elevated platforms, and it creates like a sort of culture around that. That's like how deer hunting works.
1: I uh, we were uh, down at the Dallas Fire Club show a couple weeks ago, and. Uh, unbelievable amount of Texas residents saying we're going out and we're going to hunt public land this year. And they're all going out of state, lots of New Mexico, Colorado, Idaho, uh, Wyoming, some Montana, but all like got to go try out this public land hunting stuff because we just can't do anything around here. Oh, really? Yeah. Pretty cool to see. Here's
0: another one. Guy named Patrick. I've always had great luck with Patrick's. Uh, Plan to hunt in the future. I have a question that's yet to be. Oh, this guy's never even been hunting. It's not been addressed anywhere. He's sure after looking everywhere. Why does no one mention harvesting the diaphragm from a deer or elk? We've, we've, it's not even kind of true that no one's mentioned it. Yeah. Skirt steak. Yeah. So when you got, it's just small on a deer. Like when you open up a deer where the diaphragm, fastens to the rib cage there's sort of like a little like it the diaphragm kind of t-bones Does this making sense it kind of t-bones into the rib cage
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah and there's a big piece of 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 uh striated or like stringy kind of meat that's long and thin it's like a like a hershey's bar it'd be like four hershey's bars or two three hershey's bars set end to end right Diameter and length, mm-hmm. two Hershey's bars laid end to end, let's say. And that's where the di- that's how the diaphragm joins to the cavity. Now what that's you, skirt stake. Is it a
2: continuation of the diaphragm or the skirt stake?
0: Yeah, it's like the diaphragm kind from of, the ribs back. The, no, it's like the diaphragm sort of goes out, and that's how it's sort of welded, which isn't an anatomical term, but the diaphragm kind of is welded to the, the 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 body of the animal. Mm-hmm. And when you go and get uh carne asada, that's in in a Mexican restaurant, that's what you're getting. And on deer it's just really small. On elk and moose, it's like legit like you can make like full-on balls out fajitas with the skirt. Yep. I don't know of anyone who takes like the the who, who does anything besides maybe grind up the actual diaphragm, but that skirt steak portion is usable. Yes. Which is the one that you're talking about that basically flaps below the
2: ribs going back. It's very close to below the ribs, but it's,
1: it's, yeah, it's kind of like where our, our ribs really start to V and, and uh, angle back. That's where the, the diaphragm. Right, right. Yeah, at the xiphoid process where the ribs come together.
0: Yeah, so I think on deer you just don't really notice because it it's really small. On a moose, when you open that thing up, you're like, "Holy shit, that's a big chunk of meat." Yeah, yeah, but you guys aren't answering
2: my questions still. Maybe you don't. You know ask, how like you're not
0: asking one well. That could be. <laughs> it doesn't taper back. It like it's yeah, but you like know like when
2: you piece. when you gut an animal. Okay, so yeah, you're calling that then just the flank steak. Yes, and then the skirt being the diaphragm.
0: Yes. Oh, the flank. Yeah, is the, well, in, I always grew up calling it the paunch. hmm Yeah. Which would be your sides below your ribs, but above your hip bone, below your ribs, there's just this thin thing, the paunch. We call that the paunch. That you can just grind up. Yeah. It's low-quality meat. And it has a very strong bit of fascia in there, or like a, like a thick. It's
2: where love handles form. Yes. There you go. No, yeah, yeah. I, I'm pinching mine. I believe that's where it would be. But. I've been putting a lot of work into
0: mine. <laughs> in love handles? Is that like really a thing? Like, yes, that you're like, uh, I need something to grab onto. I'm gonna grab onto love handles. Oh no, oh, no, no, no! I think it, that's <laughs> a
2: marketing spin on getting fat. Oh, okay, yeah, It's a marketing. It, spin. It's an, like an ironic, is it?
0: Yeah, because yeah. it just seems like like if that. I don't know. I just have a hard time with it. That that's the hand. That that's. I doubt that's one a preferred uh, leverage point. When there. one needs purchase, that's where they find it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, quickie. There's a quickie. There's a quickie, then a quickie, then a longy. Uh, this first quickie's a question. Second quickie's the observation. The third longie is just a whole different thing. Uh. This guy says to say, uh, "What? How do you sharpen your knife out in the field?" He talks about he's got a Benchmade Saddle Mountain skinning knife, which is a damn fine knife. Agreed. Um, he goes on to say that how Benchmade has a deal where you can send your knife in and get it sharpened, which he likes. But let's say you're out hunting and you got to, you're going to be skinning a couple different animals. How do you? What do you? How do you sharpen out in the field? Okay. Well, Benchmade oh. also makes, you use their
2: uh, sharpeners? Yeah, I have you that. Use the little one or the big one? Honestly, I think the big
1: one is well worth packing if you're going to really stick with a, a true fixed blade knife. And I, I can't remember what it's called, but it's got a ceramic part to it. It's got kind of a coarse and a fine diamond sharpener on there. And, and yeah. Man, a little minimal bit of practice, and you can sharp. I mean, sharp, sharpen those things.
0: Yeah, it's a little it's a little heavy and a little clunky, but it depends what you're up to. Yeah. Like, if you're out hunting where you're, you know, let's say you and your buddies are out hunting antelope and you're cutting up one or two a day, um, then I'll be like, okay, this warrants bringing, like, more sharpening. If just going out on, a, for one thing, I don't worry about it. I used to just carry, like, a little, just, like, basic, like, a little teeny, teeny diamond honer. Yep. But it's like the, the the you get so much more to have an actual Yes. An actual face to, to, to sharpen on.
1: If you bring a multi tool of some sort, you can use the hard edges on that to, you know, straighten out the edge of your of your blade, mm-hmm. which is typically more than enough to keep you keep you running, I feel. If you want to be minimalist, you know, and you're bringing that.
0: What I like about the that benchmade deal is it's got the angle. So it's like molded into it. There's, there's there's like a big diamond honer, not big. There's a diamond honer face on it, but molded into the molded into the sharpener is the is a set bevel. So each swipe you take, you can lay it up on that beveled piece, and it sets your angle. You got it doesn't hold your angle. You got to maintain the angle as you swipe, but it establishes your angle to go in there and sharpen her up. And it's got like a little leather stroppy thing on it and a ceramic rod on it. I don't know what it's called. Guided field sharpener. And it's got a hook sharpener on it. Mm-hmm. Guided field sharpener? Yep. Yeah. yeah, you can sharpen serrated knives, scissors, fish yeah. hooks. We all know there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. There's more ways to sharpen a knife. This is one of them, and it's like, I, I like it.
1: But if you take a brand new
0: blade out of
1: the box and you're careful with it. It does not take much
2: at all to get that thing sharp, sharp
0: if you don't mess it up.
2: Yeah, I think that's the key is uh staying on top of your maintenance. Yes, Don't sir. let it get
0: dull. Yes. Yeah. And what dulls knives more than anything in the whole wide world is bone. Mhm. And dirt, hair, <laughs> yeah, rocks. Bone. bone is bad. Hair dulls bone messes up oh get some mud in that hair
1: when like
0: yeah when yeah. you watch
1: your buddy come in you know come in to like cut a shank or something off and you're like oh boy
0: that's not i think the knife ruining this activity i know about is when you're skinning out a head for like a whatever whatever reason you're doing it caping something or skinning it out for a euro mount and you get your knife in there and you're working the uh You're working off the hide around the pedicles. Yeah. That's a knife-ruining activity. That's almost like throwing knives at rocks. Oh, hearing the
1: knife, the blade hit the teeth, too. That just sends shivers up my spine just thinking about it. Oh,
0: yeah.
2: Yeah. I usually carry the the little, they call it the tactical sharpener. They have a mini version, too, but it's only a couple, three inches long. It's got the ceramic V-notch. Yeah. A- and the a stone. So I just use that little V-notch and just, you know, through an elk, maybe hit it two, three, four times. and uh, Just to keep
0: an eye on her. Yeah. Just keep her straight, keep her sharp. What's that thing called? I have one of those too. I carry it if I'm like, if I can't justify my big. I think it's called the tactical. If I can't justify my big full-on sharpener, then I'll grab that little V-notch dealy. But I like grew, I kind of like became suspicious of those V notch dealies.
1: I think you can, unless you take the time to really line that thing up perfectly vertical in the V notch, you can kind of mess your beveled edge up a little bit.
0: Uh, here's the observation. That was the question. Here's the observation. This guy says, You guys were struggling with a term. I think you were trying to refer to the LE effect. Now, the LE effect is when you're talking about a population not being able to recover from low numbers, meaning there are, like, critical population levels at which certain social aspects important for reproduction begin to break down. So, meaning, like, let's say you have a large – there's a a reproductive strategy called predator swamping, for instance. Let's say you have a – like, picture a large collection of, say, geese, and these geese all lay their eggs at the same time and hundreds of geese and they're all in an the area they all build a nest at the same time they all lay their eggs at the same time all those eggs hatch at the same time there will be a lot of predators lurking around but since all of those hatchlings all emerge together at the same time it's called predator swamping where the predators can gorge themselves and gorge themselves and gorge themselves but they can't get them all because they're all hitting the ground at the same time whereas let's say you took the same of the, the the same Set of circumstances, but let it play out over a month, where every day just some percentage of of these eggs hatched, and the predators could every day gobble up the small available thing. You would end up where they could feasibly get them all, but with predator swamping, you're creating such a, like a, a a deluge of offspring getting put out there that the predators can't—they just don't have a chance of getting them all during that that window of vulnerability. So likewise, if you'll see that like like elk, for instance, will sometimes gather up in very large groups. Like you might see 200, 300 cows in their calving grounds and those calves are all hitting the ground over a course of a couple of days, preferably, right? And you've got some predators hanging around, but they can't get them all. And then the, the calves are very vulnerable for a couple days. days, um, but then they're up on their feet and everybody's fine. And they can run and the vulnerability goes down and you have some survival. So the LE effect their Oli effect, is when you reduce a population down and then you wind up being that it's hit like catastrophically low levels, like that you can't just have some. You either have to have a whole bunch or you're going to have none because they need lots in order for them to be able to to survive. I can't remember what we were talking about when this came up. Was it the condor? Or maybe caribou? I don't think it was the condor. It's applicable to a ton of things. Passenger pigeon. We definitely talked about it long ago by name with the passenger pigeon that maybe that species, if you don't have a billion, you don't have any. Yeah. Like you can't maintain a population of 10,000 passenger pigeons because passenger pigeons need to have hordes of them in order for them to be socially effective or to be reproductively effective. Final one is this. Final thought for the day. A guy wrote in. and He's like curious about, is it worthwhile putting in for the buffalo hunts in Montana? Which are a mess.
1: A mess, yeah.
0: But I think it's worthwhile. So th- there's a couple buffalo hunts. you look, and There's a gardener hunt and a West Yellowstone hunt. It comes up every year where you have uh, buffalo or bison are summering in Yellowstone. And in the winter, late winter, as the snow accumulates, they need to migrate out. And when they migrate out, they cross the park boundaries and enter private land and, and national forest land. And there's a, a debate, there's this, this argument, that's this perennial argument that goes on around this, where legally the animals aren't regarded as wildlife in Montana. Um, they're regarded, once they, they go from being their wildlife in the park, even though they're native fauna that have been on, present on the ground, Always, it's like a native land mammal, native game animal, I would like to say. Um, but when they leave the park, they lose their status as wildlife. And they fall under, right right now, to varying degrees, like they fall under the jurisdiction of the Department of Livestock. They fall under the jurisdiction of the Department of Livestock because they carry brucellosis, which is a livestock disease that cattle pass to buffalo, and now buffalo carry brucellosis and they don't want the buffalo passing the brucellosis back to cattle. And so a state, you know, they enjoy brucellosis-free status, and if the disease were to cross the species barrier back in the other direction once again, you'd have brucellosis in Montana livestock, and you'd have to start doing all this testing and quarantining, and it's very expensive. So they don't want brucellosis getting back in livestock. Forget about all that for a second. Um, One of the things that they do, one of the things that the state has been experimenting with and trying to do for a long time is treating them like wildlife, treating them like wildlife. So they migrate out of the park, they cross into national forest land. Here you have a resource that has value to people as food. It's a renewable, sustainable resource. And so the state will issue through a lottery permit, draw some limited number of hunting permits. And it's controversial, can be a controversial hunt. There can be situations where there's not a lot of privacy while you're hunting. There can be a fair bit of hand-holding going on and like letting you know when they've left and where they are. It's not perfect. But I think people should participate in it and, and engage in it and get the most out of it they can, including a whole shitload of great buffalo meat. For the reason that it is a step in the right direction. And by that I mean it's a step in the direction of managing this herd as native wildlife that can support some amount of consumptive use. You have people that want the meat. The population can support limited harvest. It might not be perfect, but hunters should get in there and be engaging in it and putting in their two cents and doing the hunt and helping hunt letting hunt managers know like what they liked about it how it could be different in the future and not just turn your back on it because this is a step in the right direction it's good that they're conducting these hunts he wants to know if i uh, would suggest three eight the, the hunt 38520 or 39520 you it, know look into it i put in form i put in form and i've been down there observing the hunt before it's something we just need. I think it's something we need to be doing. There's no negative to it at all, and the more we can do to encourage states to recognize and manage these animals as as a big game species, the better. So take one for the team and go down there and do the hunt. What's the worst that comes out of it? You walk home with three hundred pounds, four hundred pounds of boneless meat, and if you draw the tag, you can give it up.
1: Like If all of a sudden you're like, boy, I'm in over my head, Yeah, you can give it up. But yeah, throw
0: your hat in the ring. But give the hunts occur at a time of year when no one's hunting anyway, so you've got to round up all your buddies. Yeah. Be like, dude, we're going to go out. We're going to, you know, it's kind of, it's a hunt. It's a management thing. Um, We're going to get the most out of them. We're all going to walk home. We're all going to walk with with 100 pounds of boneless. Mm-hmm. Heck yeah. So, Larry, get down there, bro. Thanks for joining us. Telling you what, decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison, is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.